Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Triumph Connects, a new podcast for the Triumph community. The appeal of populism has not gone away. I mean, as you said, they, they may not have solutions, but they do have slogans. I think the United States is losing uh, whatever its power, and its power is enormous. I think China actually is playing a, a very clever game, and I'm afraid to say the United States is not. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Triumph Connects. In today's episode, I speak with Professor Michael Cox. Mick is one of the most popular professors in all of Triumph. As I'm sure you will remember, Mick is super well-informed. He has provocative and interesting ideas and takes on what's going on in the world. You can always count on him to have his opinions backed up by a rich and deep knowledge of the history of what he's talking about, as well as the articulateness of that classic British academic that, at least I know for myself, I have always been in awe of. Mick was appointed to a chair at the LSE in 2002. Before joining the school, he was at Queen's University in Belfast, and then after that at the Department of International Politics at Aberystwyth. He helped uh, to establish a Cold War study center at the LSE in 2004, and then later went on to co-found the LSE Ideas Center in 2008. LSE Ideas is the number one ranked foreign policy think tank in Europe. In addition to his roles at the LSE, it should be noted that he's also the chair of the United States Discussion Group at Chatham House. He's a senior fellow at the Nobel Institute in Oslo. He's a visiting professor at the Center for Defense and Strategic Studies at Canberra in Australia, as well as the chair of the European Consortium for Political Research. So as you can tell, Mick is a very, very busy man, and we are delighted that he had the time to sit down and have a conversation with me. And in that conversation, we start with a discussion of John Maynard Keynes' book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, first published in 1919. Now, it may seem that this is an odd and untimely choice of the start of this conversation, but Mick uh, wrote a very long and a beautifully written introduction to an edition of this book that came out in December of 2019 to mark the 100th anniversary of the original publication. And I think that you'll find that many of the themes that are discussed in that book are particularly relevant to the global crisis in which we find ourselves today. For example, one of the things that Keynes was particularly worried about is that the economic depression that would be caused by the reparations that were being forced upon Germany in the Versailles Treaty would create a fertile ground for a particularly dangerous form of nationalism. And in our conversation, Mick and I discuss whether the economic consequences that are likely to unfold in the next few years may well create the same sort of environment where violent nationalism may thrive. In addition, we get Mick's take on the current political crisis and governance crisis in the U.S., as well as what he sees as the future of globalization and whether the current conflict between the U.S. and China is likely to get better or worse. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I believe that we really capture Mick at his best. Urbane, articulate, informed, funny, and really human in a way that makes it all very palatable in some ways. 
Just one more thing before we start. During the recording of the conversation with Mick, we had a few bandwidth issues, and so occasionally for a second or two, Mick's voice goes a bit blank or undistinguishable. These are relatively minor disturbances, but I just wanted to give you a heads up so you know that it's not with your download of the podcast itself. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Michael Cox. Mick Cox, thank you for joining us on Triumph Connects. A pleasure to be here, Matt, and great to be supporting Triumph. Oh, that's fantastic. So I've been uh, keeping an eye on you in the last uh, month or so. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, you've been quite busy. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the organization, the think tank, LSE Ideas, and what your role is in that organization and how it is working hard to address all of the myriad of different foreign policy issues that are being thrown up by the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I mean, within my own foreign policy center at the LSE, which is called LSE Ideas, we've been covering more or less everything, but basically everything is about one thing, which is about COVID-19 and its consequences on world politics. We've looked at, is the world deglobalizing? How is COVID going to affect the US-China relationship? How is it going to affect China? Uh, how is it going to affect the European Union? We did a session two on Africa and the role of the great powers in Africa and how COVID-19 will be affecting Africa. So we are very, very active, as indeed is the LSE as a whole, I have to say, and doing a good job in covering and analyzing all the implications of this most extraordinary crisis. Well, and I would certainly recommend to all the Triumph community, there's a lot of stuff online. Uh, If you check out LSE Ideas uh, on the LSE page, you'll see a lot of content there that I think people will find really interesting. Um, I hope so. You know, you you also, one of the things I noticed, I think this came out in December of 2019 on the 100th anniversary, but you wrote a really brilliant introduction to a new edition of Keynes, uh, The Economic Consequences of Peace. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit about that and how it relates to now. But first, for those who are unfamiliar, it might be helpful if you could just say a few words about who Keynes was and why Mm. is he so important? Thanks. Well, there have been several biographies of Keynes. I won't be as long as the biographies. (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll be... Most people know Keynes as as the person who invented the word Keynesianism which is in a sense about the role of the state in the management of a capitalist economy in crisis. And he wrote the general theory in 36, which most people didn't read and very few people fully understood, but it became identified as something we call Keynesianism, which is about how markets fail, which is a very relevant question, is it not? And how the government and the state has to play a key role in making up for the deficits left behind by the market. I mean, it's a much more complicated book than that, but that is the bottom line. He then went on in World War II to become really the key negotiator with the Americans on US loans and uh, went through that. He was one of the key uh, builders of the International Monetary Fund. He worked with the United States at Bretton Woods very closely with Harry Dexter White, who, by the way, turned out to be a Soviet agent, but that's another question. He came back to London. He sold the deal. It was a difficult deal for the British because they had to accept now the dollar was going to be the dominant currency in the world and not the pound sterling. He was by then also very ill and he died um, tragically and early, by the way, in 1946. 
his background, of course, is fascinating. For an economist, he's very interesting, if I might say so. I don't mean to say that economists are not interesting, but if, if we call him an economist, boy, was he an interesting guy. He was born to an academic family in Cambridge in the late Victorian period. His father was an economist. His mother was a very active suffragist and uh, educator and counselor in Cambridge. Naturally enough, he went to Eton, where he was the brilliant young boy of his, of his year. Naturally enough, he then went to Cambridge. And going to Cambridge, of course, he had to go to King's College, Cambridge, which has also that beautiful chapel, as you remember, Matt. Mm. And there, of course, he mixed with some of the greats and the good, who we now know today, Ian Foster, Bertrand Russell, philosophers, poets, classicists. He studied maths, but basically the fundamental education of a gentleman then, and mainly only gentlemen who got an education, of course, uh, was classics. He then decided he didn't quite know what to do with this, but he kept all his friends around him in a secret society called the Apostles. Uh, I could talk about that if you like, because they were important, because they became the Bloomsbury Group, which had a big influence on him throughout his whole life. He sat for the exams for the, uh, for the Foreign Office in 1905, came second, which annoyed him enormously, moved to the Indian, much like, and essentially resigned from the India office, though he did write a book on Indian currency. He went back to Cambridge. He went back, of course, to his beloved uh, Kings, uh, took up the editorship of an economics journal, an economist who doesn't study much economics. There wasn't much to study then, to be perfectly honest. Nonetheless, he had always a brilliant notion that the economist should be useful in terms of policy advice. And when the war came, the Treasury grabbed hold of him, pulled him in, because he was really a very brilliant young man. I mean, you know, and, uh, didn't suffer falls easily, I think would be the way to put it, Matt. The Treasury pulled him in, and he essentially became, I would call it, the key, the key, the key intellectual within the trade. Then what was his main job? The same as in World War II negotiating loans with the Americans. Uh, and throughout the war, he was, that was what he did. He, he basically had millions and millions, literally millions or billions of dollars and pounds every day to finance the war. And that's what he was involved in. That left him with a, with a memory. One memory was that he, he didn't much like the United States. Um, he was a proud Englishman, if you like. He didn't want to see America, in a sense, taking over the world, as it seemed like it might be doing at the time. And secondly, it also left him with a deep fear of the impact of the war on the world. He was then called to the Paris peace negotiations in 1919. He, he was there for the best part of six months between January and June of, 2000, of 1919, and then left. He resigned in disgust in, um, in May of that year before the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. And then from that, he went on to write this famous book, which I wrote the very long introduction to, called The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Very, very briefly, what that book did was to say, this peace will not last. By punishing enemies, we punish ourselves. We've got to look for a European reconstruction. And the book sold in hundreds of thousands, and it was particularly popular in the United States, and especially popular in Germany, because the book hmm. seemed to be sympathetic to Germany uh, as well. So that's the broad, he then did a lot of things in the 20s. And, you know, but an all-round person, he loved opera. Um, you know, he was more than just what I would call the, the rather narrowly defined academic. So one of the things that were, yeah, one of the things that's interesting on the economic consequences of, of the piece, <laughs> I think, is it seems to me, and I, I don't pretend any expertise here, but on my reading of it, he seemed to, not only kind of have the prescience to see that uh, this treaty wasn't going to work, he thought that this was just going to destroy Europe and, and, and lead to a, a more conflict. 
He mm. worried about the rise of nationalism, et cetera. Mm. He seemed to have this idea that what was needed was a, a more effective international structure that wasn't necessarily focused on justice or revenge or what was right and what was wrong. He had these uh, broadsides attacks on Wilson saying that the, he, was, mm. he, he didn't have the intellectual capacity to under, even understand what the words meant, but he kept repeating mm. them nonetheless. Mm. But he seemed to have this kind of idea that there needed to be international structures. And of course, in Bretton Woods, he got a, a second chance to mm. do this. Mm. So I'm just mm. wondering, do you see any parallels in today's international situation? I mean, of those that Keynes would decide. I mean, we had this great economic crisis in 2008. Mm. Um, there was some global leadership at that point through the coordinated mm. somewhat through the U.S. But now we see kind of a COVID, mm. in the COVID world or maybe a post-COVID world. Did, did any of the failures of the international community Put yourself yeah. in Keynes' position. What would he okay, say? Okay, I'll, I'll try and be John Maynard Keynes. He was six foot six, and I'm not, by the way. Uh, he's a very <laughs> tall guy. I think there's a huge amount of relevance of what Keynes said back in 1919 to today. With, I mean, okay, the, the moments are different. You're coming out of a world war. There's been a Russian revolution. There's revolutionary dangers all over Europe. There's starvation in Austria, Germany. There's a civil war going on in Russia. There's, you know, is a period of extraordinary turbulence. And we're not in that situation today, I think, with all due respect to the, the terrible consequences of COVID-19 and, and all the problems we're facing in the world today. So we've got to be a bit careful not to over-parallel, if you like. You know, sure. Draw too many analogies. On the other hand, Keynes warned about three things. One, he warned about nationalism. He said, you know, if you're going to base economic strategies and policies for the world, you've got to base them for the world, not on narrowly defined self-interest. And he thought that nationalism was driving the economic policies of the Allies in 1919. And secondly, you know, conflict is, in a sense, fundamentally problematic for a stable and prosperous world economy. Nonetheless, if you look at the way that relationship is rapidly deteriorating in a nationalistic, self-interested, make America great again, make China great again, I think he would see this as a major danger. I think he would actually, broadly speaking, like globalization and would worry about the dangers of deglobalization, which a lot of people are talking about today. And I think fundamentally, too, I think he had a perspective, which I, I think most politicians didn't have at the time. And then I think basically, if I might be perfectly honest, very few politicians have today. If I look at the politicians in 1919, actually all of them were quite brilliant men in their own different ways. Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister. Wilson, who comes under a lot of flack, nonetheless was, you know, had massive intellectual talents and actually arrived in Paris, the hero of Europe, you know, the great liberator who the new world would bring light and, and a lot of aid, hopefully. So, you know, the politicians were not without their own capabilities, but they always had to pander. And this was the problem that Keynes couldn't get around to domestic publics who were demanding tough measures against Germany, self-interest, look after number one. And I think, again, when we're thinking of the world today, Matt, I, I wonder, again, politicians who I actually do not put on the same level, frankly, I'll be perfectly honest. I think there has been a decline in the political class. <laughs> over the 100 years since, uh, since 1919, to be perfectly honest with you. But nonetheless, the same problems are confronting political leaders today. Domestic publics demanding action and looking after your own people. And I think, again, Keynes would say, this is not the way to go. We need to find European and now today global solutions. But that's not what's happening, is it? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there seem. I mean, I, I think that that's right. I, I think though that there seems to be some conflict somewhat internally in Keynes' argument. So uh, he, mm. he at the same time was looking at these international structures, but if you look at his theories on employment, he had mm. the state intervening quite dramatically mm. to get to what he thought was possible this full employment and then once mm -hmm. full employment was there the economy could thrive etc mm. but that that's a very national step that reach, yeah. reaching unemployment that that necessarily means a state action on a small state not on the international mm. scene so it seemed that his kind of economic model was based on very strong national movements by the state Yet he had this kind of more international view of globalization. Do you think that that's right? Is there any conflict? I, I, I think that's a very good point. But I, I think in Keynes' mind, there wasn't a contradiction between the two, though I think probably, as you suggest, there may well have been. There's absolutely no doubt. But when we get to the Great Depression of 29, following the Wall Street crash, and then what happened in America and Britain and the rest of the world, world capitalist order at the time, Keynes was clearly, he actually went protectionist. We defend our industries, you know, mass unemployment is coming. We can't see the whole the shipbuilding industry, the cotton industry, and all the other industries that Britain then had, you know, going down. In the same way, what happened in the United States, we had smooth poorly. And of course, in some sense, what Hitler did in Germany, somebody once said what Hitler did under an authoritarian system was apply Keynesianism properly, which other governments still in, in thrall to orthodoxy were not able to pursue. Now, I'm not saying Keynes was pro-Nazi or pro-Hitler, but nonetheless, if you actually look at the policies pursued by Germany, it's highly nationalistic. Uh, under Helmut Schack, the then finance minister, who was actually influenced by Keynes. It's quite interesting to see that. On the other hand, what Keynes also believed is that if you do that, you've still got to keep the whole perspective of the world as a whole in mind. Now, whether he's trying to square a circle that can't be squared, if there is such a thing as a square circle, you know, it's possible to kind of think one and do the other and do the other and think the other. I mean, it, it is problematic. I, I, I accept that. But I think in the end, I would come back to what he said in 1919 and what he later said when he was working with the Americans and others during World War II, that ultimately national economies will only work over the long term when they have cooperative structures and international institutions for the regulation of the world economy, hence the International Monetary Fund, hence the creation of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, hence the World Bank. You know, to put it in, in, in strange terms, I suppose, Matt, you can't have capitalism in one country, successful capitalism in one country. Sure. And I think that's what Keynes was really driving at. Well, you know, you mentioned that he was also worried about the rise of nationalism and its ties to kind of economic deprivation. And, and he mm. was, again, prescient in his anticipation of what would happen later on in the century. There's some interesting studies now. There's one that was come out just out of the uh, New York Central Bank um, or the New York uh, part of the uh, bank in, in, in the U.S. It shows that extreme parties in the 20s and 30s in Europe the rise of them, particularly this this particular study focuses on German cities, mm. is very tied and correlated with the extent of the damage due to the pandemic of the Spanish flu. Mm. So the mm. argument in the paper is essentially that if you want to understand the rise of extremism in Europe, uh, part of it is, of course, the depression, but part of it is the hangover of the mm. massive impact of the pandemic that was the Spanish flu. Now, mm. we're going to be looking at this article in the upcoming LSE module, but do you fear similar patterns emerging now? Well, I mean, 
so far we've not had Spanish flu in terms of scale. Yeah. I mean, it killed 50 million. Um, and interestingly, too, although I'm not, I'm not making the case, it, it affected younger people more than older people, whereas this particular pandemic is, is affecting older people rather than younger people to a much greater extent. So we haven't reached the level of what's called the Spanish flu um, of 1919 and 1920. And I'm interested to hear, uh, and I'd love to read this particular piece, which looks at the the, the additional impact that um, the flu had. I, but I would also warn, without having read the piece, by the way, Matt, so I've got to be a bit careful, um, the structure of the world economy in 1919 was deeply fragile anyway. You know, it didn't need a pandemic flu of the scale of the Spanish flu to make it even more fragile than it already was. You had massive debt owed to the United States. You know, a whole breakdown of empires in Europe, the breakdown of what had been integrated economies within Central Europe, such as the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You had governments pursuing what we would now call populist policies, nationalist policies, which had further negative impacts on economic output and productivity in the 19th what really held the economies up in the 1920s in Europe, frankly, uh, was the United States, in my view. You know, the Dawes Plan, the Young Plan of the 1920s, temporarily held up what was still a very fragile, fragile economic order. And when, of course, the United States experienced its own Wall Street crash in October 1929, it brought the it brought the whole house down. But I'm interested to hear that that impact of of, of, of the flu itself at the time, further deep and what was already a very profound crisis. Now, when we get to COVID-19, I don't need to tell you or, or people participating in Triumph, but we're looking today at a very, very fragile world economy, not because of what we, the outcome of a war or the consequences of deep debt, you know, what we call the normal reasons for a crisis, as we saw in 2008. What we're looking at here is simply the consequences. We can't travel, we can't invest, people can't meet together. It's, it's, it's an absolutely unique uh, situation. And I suppose the consequences of it, Matt, in terms of the world economic and recovery from it, is going to depend on three things. One, how long it lasts. Two, I'm bound to say how well the United States comes out of it. And at the moment, it's not looking great. I'll be perfectly honest with you. And three, to make the other point, how well China comes out. Because it's all very well for people to engage in anti-China rhetoric, for people to be suspicious or distrustful of China. But, you know, this is still 16% of the world economy. The United States is another 23 or 24%. Those two countries together are 40% of the world economy. And if they don't kind of work out the deal, you know, work out ways of working together, which they're not doing at the moment, then we're going to find some very, very deep problems coming out of what is still an ongoing and profound crisis. In fact, the animosity between them continues to grow. It uh, does. And this is, I mean, I'm, well, it's not a question of whether you, you trust China or don't trust China, whether you are in favor of President Trump or not in favor of President Trump. It's simply thinking of these two vast economies, you know, added together, it's 40% of world GDP. You know, this is, this is the, the U.S. dollar is still the primary reserve currency in the world. If the United States goes wrong, the world goes wrong. And this is what we found in the 1920s too, man. Hmm. The United States goes down, which I certainly hope it does not. I'm, I'm optimistic that it won't. But nonetheless, if it goes down, then the consequences are going to be very, very dangerous as well. This is why I'm very much looking forward 
you know, to a US recovery as quickly as possible. We're not seeing it really at the moment, are we? Well, yeah, as you say, it's completely new. I, what worries me a little bit is that, um, you know, you're, you're right in, in noting the difference between the Spanish flu, both in who it targeted and the mm. scope of it so far anyway. But if we look at the global south right now and you mm. start to see the trends emerging in Latin America and in Africa, um, I think it may be, I know, as you have argued, that the so-called global north, the rich north, will somehow get through this battered, torn, reduced, but somehow mm. survive. But if if we have this completely synchronous big hit in the global north economy, and then you have a hit in all of the, a, a massive decline in all of the extractive-based industries, the extractive-based economies in the so-called global south, you then have on top of that large-scale death uh, caused by the pandemic, no money to be had because the global north has its own problems. Mm. Uh, lack of leadership uh, or, a, or a kind of resignation of leadership from the U.S. Maybe these this rise in extremism or uh, new forms of political authoritarianism or totalitarianism will come from that global south along with massive migrant uh, flows, et cetera, which may ex in, in, in the same time exert large amounts of fuel into more right-wing xenophobic parties in the global north. But that's a kind of nightmaric situation. <laughs> I hope you're well, more think, optimistic I, than me. Uh, well, no, I'm not necessarily. I, I think we, you know, worst case analysis and worst case thinking is not because you want it to happen, but because at least you see this as one potential outcome of the situation you're in and you start to plan for it. Mm. Frankly, if we'd had more worst case thinking of <laughs> and then plan for it, we may not be in such a mess as we are today. I'm very much in favor of worst case analysis. So I think you're absolutely right to focus on the potentialities which are in, inherent in the, in the situation. And not just within the global north, but what we call generically the global south. And as we know, countries, somebody was some to me about from Latin America, South America, really interesting thing, you know, you can try and do something about it in the north because you've got the resources, the capabilities, the infrastructure, the hospitals, the trained doctors, the nurses. It may not always be very well done, but you've, you've got that material basis and, and, and that infrastructure of intellectual capital to do it. In the south, we don't. We just don't have it. You look at the number of hospitals or doctors or nurses, you know, in most sub-Saharan African countries, look at South Africa today, Look at even a country like India, which, which I suppose still remains within the global south by in some indicators and not others. Again, where's the infrastructure? Where's the hospitals? Where's the doctors? Same in South America. And as you point out, and this gets, just gets us back to this whole problem of globalization, the whole issue of globalization, if something goes wrong in one country, it's going to hit somebody else. Yeah. You just can't escape it. It's the famous butterfly wings. But the movements of people... Uh, you know, what will people do if they're so desperate in South America or Central America? We know what they'll do. They'll either turn in on themselves, which is very likely with all sorts of horrible, unpleasant consequences, or they will they will try and move. And if they try and move, then, as you point out, make populism popular in the global north, in the United States and in other parts of Europe as well. Well, one part of it has been not just economics, but also people's coming into your country over which you feel you have no control. Which is interesting because um, 
tying that back a little bit to our discussion of the animosity between the U.S. and China, China is pursuing an interesting policy now where they're floating the idea that they will forgive massive amounts of debt because much of the of these developing world debt recently has come from China and they mm. are essentially pursuing a globalist strategy where they are looking, it seems to me, looking for an increase mm. of soft power by saying we're going to forgive some of this debt Mm. At a at a cost to their own economy, so this is this is another kind of wild card that that you need to throw into this mix, I suppose. Well, I mean, as you yourself have no doubt read, Matt, and all our friends in Triumph have also said, read, who's winning the COVID war between the United States and China? It's a rather crude way of putting it, but nonetheless, that's a that's a reasonable question. And you know, China, as I say, China's had a, a game of two halves, hasn't it? It started very badly. Uh, and there are many criticisms that need to be made of China. And Trump has articulated some of those fairly enough, you know. On the other hand, the second half looks like China's done quite well in the sense of coming out of it quicker by its own authoritarian means. Deaths in China, even if we don't believe all the facts, nonetheless, they're much lower than what's been going elsewhere. The country, 1.3 billion people. Moreover, I think it has grasped the nettle and seen that the potentiality of it is increasing its own influence around the world by acting in a way which seems to be in the general interest and not just in China's narrow national interest, will win it friends and allies over the long term. So I think one of the great geopolitical results of COVID is going to be that if it carries on as we are at the moment, Matt, I think the United States is, lose, is losing, hmm. uh, whatever its power, and its power is enormous, I'm well aware of that. I think China actually is, is playing a, a very clever game, and I'm afraid to say the United States is not. Yeah, at the very least, they aren't even paying attention. They're not even paying attention, but you can see where China's going. And they, they clearly see COVID, it began appallingly from them. And, and you know, much responsibility lies at their door. I agree with that. So uh, I guess here's a couple of optimistic observations. Maybe you okay, maybe help have us. Some. So, so it seems that the current cast of kind of authoritarian leaders in the world aren't having a very good crisis. If, if we take as an exception, this game of two halves that you mentioned about China. Mm. Um, do you think this will be a counter, uh, kind of countercurrent to the extreme extremism fueled by this economic depression that seems to be coming? I mean, it, the authoritarian leaders yeah. just simply have not done very well compared to others. No, they haven't. They haven't. Uh, but they're very they're very adept at exploiting fears and tensions, aren't they, Matt? Mm. If they, you know, they can blame it on outsiders, they can blame it on foreigners. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, I, I always worry that in deep economic uncertain times, you know, the dangers of extremism and extremists exploiting the situation to their own advantage. You know, economic crises are not good for moderate parties because people are looking for solutions to their lives. Yeah. And what the populists are good at, even though they can't deliver, as you point out, they're very good at making the promises. Whether they can then deliver on those promises is an entirely different question. Yeah. So Let's go back, circle back a little bit to talk about the U.S. In, in that, you know, you say that the U.S. in some ways is losing this competition or this opportunity that's created in some ways by the COVID crisis. Mm. In the past, the U.S. has been kind of seen sometimes as the so-called indispensable nation uh, mm -hmm. for kind of coordinating interstate action in areas like security or climate and, and in the past, even pandemic uh, preparation. Do you think that it ever was? a kind of indispensable nation. And if, if it, if it was, 
is it still now? And and do we see lack of coordination because the U.S. is not playing that role? I'm an IR scholar, Matt, with a lot of interest in international political economy, as you know, and history too. Um, and it's it's largely about power, uh, as well as values. Um, and if you look at the United States in 1945, sorry to go back, but you know, if you go back, yeah, if the large part of the Cold War, you know, the United States was overwhelmingly dominant, even in relationship to the Soviet Union. Um, and that power gave it the capacity to organize many things in the world, like alliances, the IMF, aid, and various, various other things. So in that regard, it didn't only act in its own interest, it acted in, in, in a sense for the global. And it thought that basically, you needed a global, open global economy, or an open door economy, to use an older fashioned phrase, you know, to, to fulfill its own interest. And it thought an open door, more liberal democracies around the world, the better would actually act, would be in its interest and not just in the world. And in that regard, yes, it, it did actually act as, as, in a sense, what I call the fireman and the banker of the world, putting out, mm. trying to, it created some fires too, by the way, and also acting as the banker of the world and, 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 and in a sense, the lender of last resort and organizing allies too around it, particularly in Asia and especially, by the way, in Europe. And in, whether you want to use the word indispensable nation, which I think was a term used by Madeleine Albright um, in the 1990s, mm. uh, President Clinton, Secretary of State then. I, I'm, I'm not sure I like that kind of language, but I understand what Mrs. Mrs. Albright, Dr. Albright, was getting at. The real problem today, and you've hinted at it, and I think, I think you probably know the answer to your own question, and I, that, that, that the United States is not playing that role to anything like the same degree now. Hmm. I mean, you can't make America great again, <laughs> basically look after America's interests alone, as this current president seems to be doing, and then think you can then play a wider global role in terms of leadership. And this, in a sense, is the fundamental contradiction of this presidency, without going into all the ins and outs of some of the other things he said and tweeted. You cannot be the global leader and be nationalistic. Do you think he even wants to be the global leader? I mean, I, I read an interesting article. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but they said that the U.S. leadership role, um, they, they weren't fired, they resigned. There's a lot. There's a lot in that. I mean, no, you know. I mean, but yeah, whether Trump really sees it like that or not. I mean, much of what he says would indicate it's America first. You know, whether it's on trade, whether it's on alliances, the things he said against the European Union and European allies, all of it indicates a kind of not a disinterest in the world, but we will do what we have to do, and we don't need to have you guys around to kind of say thank you or yes or whatever else. And this brings it back a little bit to Keynes because this is the yes. transactional nature that he, he probably resigned over in 1919, yes? That's exactly right. In 1919, he saw that. And, and Wilson, for all of his rhetoric about promoting creating the League of Nations, remember hmm. Wilsonian project, the early form of the United Nations in 1920, it wasn't had many virtues, but in the end still believed he, act, he had to act in the American national interest. And why Keynes was so critical of Wilson in that book, which I wrote the introduction for, Matt, was because I think he was deeply disappointed in a liberal president who didn't act like a liberal, as I think he believed he ought to have done. That is to say, cancel those damn debts which have been accumulated during World War II, and then go back to the United States and be able to sell your wonderful idea of a League of Nations, which you palpably failed to do. Now, there was a second chance, and you mentioned that, 
And you could say that after World War II, it was a new America. It was a new American leadership. They'd just come out of the New Deal. Many of the people involved in the American foreign policy and making the economic policy were largely New Dealers who had come, under, come up under Franklin Delano Roosevelt and actually had a much more internationalist outlook. So that kind of highlights the importance of the, of the beliefs of the leader. So let's think about, let's say that it's now January 2021, we have a Biden administration. Mm. Um, do you think that they would be able to kind of fix, in, in, in inverted commas, fix this situation of the U.S. no longer playing such a, a coordinating I, role? I, I, yeah, that's, I mean, we've had a lot of discussions in LSE ideas about this, particularly on China. Um, on, on China, I, I, I'm, I'm rather pessimistic um, because it's not just Trump. There's a very huge swathe of American public opinion now, which clearly shows deep distrust and dislike of, of China. And in a sense, have bought into some of the rhetoric that the current president has uh, you know, put out there on unfair trade practices, state-owned enterprises, and, and all the rest. If you look at the trade deal, that was signed in December 2019. It only dealt l largely with you know, agriculture. It left so many things un untouched and undone. And I think the, the, the drum has been beating on, against China over the last four to five years. And I think going back to your question about um, Biden, I think he's likely not to ignore that, uh, that, that, that sentiment. And therefore, I, I, I don't see a major amelioration in the relationship between the US and China. I think, however, the rhetoric will be toned down. Hmm. And I think that will be important. The second thing that Biden will bring, and I don't, I don't want to make this a party political broadcast on behalf of Joe Biden, but on the other hand, I think there's no question, and he's already said this, you know, he's, he certainly will see allies as allies and not as problems. Yeah. And I think he's going to look at multilateral institutions. He will also go back and talk about things like climate change in a, in, a, in a way that this president clearly is not. And he may even take the United States back into the World Health Organization yeah. if it is, is in the process. So well, yeah. Send out a different kind of message that America, in, in a sense, is not returning completely to normal and that the China question will remain a question to be, to be answered. But nonetheless, I think it will actually harm, bring in at least a, a, a new voice into a debate which has, in a sense, been, I think, you know, lost well, and, and, and the left of the Democratic Party, which is an insurgent, uh, is not, um, is anything but pro-China. Anything but pro-China, because the question of human rights, labor rights, all sorts of other things. Along with the trading issues. Exactly. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, one of the things that I am hopeful about, and I, I don't know if this is just me being overly optimistic, <laughs> but it might be, I don't know, but is it possible, do you think, uh, tell me that my optimism is is well founded, and I'll be happy. But is it possible that you think a new international order, a kind of new regulatory, legal based or, or rule based system, might be more robust without a key coordinator or a single actor? Well, this has been discussed. I know this gets back to the indispensable nation. You, do, mm. you just need a band leader, don't you? You need a band leader also knows how to play all the instruments in the, in the orchestra as well, to kind of use a mixed metaphor image, for which I do apologize. I'm one of those, maybe I've been around too long, Matt, and maybe I've been studying the world for far too long, I don't know. But I, I kind of do come back to the view that if the United States doesn't do it, then there's nobody else who really wants to do it. Actually, it's quite interesting that China might want to do certain things uh, for its own interest, and it might have 
positive consequences globally, and I wouldn't want to talk that down. Nonetheless, it's got nowhere near the same resources, nowhere near the same same alliance system and, and, and that the United States possesses. So whether it can be done without the United States, I, I'm a little bit worried about. However, and there's the key word, however, I, I still feel that others also need to start doing a great deal more. Mm. You, know, you know, constantly waiting for Uncle Sam, you know, I mean, I think, smell the coffee. You know, we, I want to see the European Union doing far more, and they're doing a fair amount, but doing far more. I'd like to see other regional uh, agencies such as ASEAN doing far more. Hmm. The African Union doing far more. You know, I think we, we need to see other regional organizations and countries doing far more. The United States will have to be part of the solution, because to use the old phrase map, it's not part of the solution. It's going to be part of the problem. But I, I do think we're going to have to see others, what I call a coalition of the willing. You know, new coalitions of the willing, not in the Iraq war sense, but in the, in the sense that you mean it, to step up to the plate and start coming up with ideas, start coming up with clear perspectives and visions of a, of a future, which doesn't go against the United States, but doesn't always assume the United, that Uncle Sam's going to be there always to pick up the, pick up the tab. Yeah, I mean, you and I have... I'm sure served on committees in various institutions where one or two people were kind of the go-to people. Everyone knew that they were going to do the work and everybody had lots of suggestions. And Some, then, somebody once said to me, Matt, if you want to get anything done, ask a busy person. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and then everybody would go back to their offices and, and nothing would get done. And exactly. so maybe once you remove those people, the stuff still needs to be done. That My hope is maybe that that would happen. On a, on a slightly... Uh, I don't know, more hopeful or, or more sad note. I, I want to just talk a little bit about the current situation in the U.S. over the last few weeks. Um, and I, I want to try not to get into the details of, of the system mm. because I, I, I think that, uh, frankly, neither of us are in a good position to be able to have no. great insights into what's happening there. But mm. I look at China and Russia and other a actors who have argued that the current turmoil in the U.S. is just simply the symptoms of a fundamentally dysfunctional political system. Um, and yeah. it's, this, it's, it's the evidence of the weakness of the kind of governance model. Now, you can deny the alternatives that China and Russia and others mm. kind of put forward as the alternatives to this model. Do you think that there's something in their critique of the fundamental kind of conflicts at the heart of the American yeah. governance model? Look, I, I, I take the view, and I've, always, I've argued this for years, uh, Matt, that I think that the strengths of the American system are great. Uh, the, the values that the United States has are, to my mind, broadly speaking, good. And most Americans are very decent human beings. You know? oh, thank you. Thanks to the United <laughs> States, you know, I mean... Uh, you know, I feel at home in the United States. Uh, I feel at home in France too. But you know, but you, you get my point. Hmm. Positives of the United States uh, are, are, are very real, and its contribution, it seems to me, to the world. It, it, there's many things it's done wrong. The Iraq War. I don't think it was great there. There's many other things um, which clearly need to be put under the microscope and criticised in a fair-minded way. Um, that said, I think, however, you, you can't get away from the situation. I mean, who was it? Thomas Piketty, or was it eight years ago, wrote this huge book on inequality? Well, 
one of the consequences of COVID has been to expose both class and deep racial inequalities in terms of the who who's dying and who's not dying. Well, we know the biggest problem for anybody now is being old and being male, but also the whole question of your skin color and also the deprivation that is associated with that. Also, the numbers of, you know, one third of prisoners in the United States in turn are, are African-Americans. And COVID, it seems to me, has brought this out. It's kind of torn away and brought this out. And then you, you need it, as quite often happens in a crisis situation. You need one moment that, you know, really highlights anger and highlights. And suddenly you get this flood. This explosion, and all we saw was what happened in Minneapolis, and that suddenly brought out all of these these deep resentments, legitimate ones, deep deep unhappiness and worries about inequality. Why are so many black people dying? African Americans dying? What is the nature of policing in the United States? No, and again, we all need a police force. I'm, I'm not one who kind of thinks you don't need a police force, not in the least. Got a very heavily armed police in a country with lots of guns, you know, this is very dangerous. Now, I know the, the death in Minneapolis was not caused by guns, but it, again, it's a form of policing. And, and again, this is something I think the United States really does have to address. You know, it's, it's not to say we're wonderful. Isn't our English policemen wonderful? <laughs> Aren't all American policemen like that, like Chauvin? But I think that is another big issue. So it has exposed. Well, it's like this always will tell you something about the deeper society. And if you don't get it, and if you don't see it, then these problems will, will persist and possibly get worse. Yeah. I mean, one of the motivations behind the questions was the question was that some people argue that, you know, the kind of original sin of slavery, race relations in the U.S. is another part of kind of the exceptionalism of, of the U.S., maybe a dark yeah. side of the exceptionalism of the U.S., yeah. One way to look at the current situation in the U.S. is a is a kind of uprising against systematic uh, racist policies, et cetera, et cetera, institutional racism. And finally, as you said, a spark set this off. Yes. Another way that I think it is in some ways it, they might both be correct, but is perhaps somewhat more challenging for everyone else is that the U.S. is just leading the way like it often does in these kind of social movements. Yeah. And that the, as you said, the deep economic inequality that the current crisis is exposing is not unique to the U.S. Not sure. And that what we will, what we see in the U.S. is um, obviously a, a cocktail of of horribleness that is creating people's response to it, but a lot of the elements of that cocktail are also existing in many different places oh. and is this just a precursor of some of the political movements to come do you think well i i i did i always had a feeling man only a feeling i can't say i've made any predictions but it was a sense that something was going to explode out of this covid crisis and i didn't know where when or how or what form it would take because the crisis is, is so profound so unique so challenging and so unequally distributed, let's be perfectly honest, mm. consider at home in our, in our houses, you know, and would be relatively safe. Lots of people out there where I live in Lambeth have to go out to work 
and you know, and, and work in the hospitals or in the public sector. You know, the low-paid workers. You know, yeah. Um, you know, and and they're the ones who are really bearing the brunt of this. Let's be perfectly honest. And so much of what we're seeing, I think, is exposing these. And you mentioned the original sin question, but slavery didn't wasn't American. I mean, it, it came with this with the whole system of slavery, hmm. slave trade, which was British, which was Portuguese, which was Spanish. Let's be honest. Slavery was normal for so many people and for so many systems over so many centuries. So it's not just an original sin for the United States. You know, who made the money out of the slave trade? It wasn't just American cotton owners or tobacco tobacco plantations. It was also, you know, many big rich families in this, as we've seen in Bristol. That's right. Yeah. You know, the West Indies docks, you know, that was the sugar that came from the West Indies. What did that come from? That came from, came from slavery. And I think one of the things this is going to do, and I, I welcome this as a genuine debate, as a genuine debate is a is, is a constant re-examination of our own of our own history and how that history is has how we've come to be where we are today and i think if that has a, a an impact which i think will be positive if done properly uh then i i would look forward to that so the original sin for america is also the original sin for much of the western world as well and much of the world more generally to be honest yeah and for me um I find a lot of the debates around, you know, should we erase our history just be ridiculous because we can we can explore our history. We 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 change our opinion mm. and views of things in the past and to remove statues of people that we would now find completely reprehensible um, doesn't seem to me to be erasing these people. It's just a, maybe a recognition of the evolving nature of the subjective understanding yeah. of what happened. I I I can I have a certain sympathy with with those who want to pull down certain statues. I mean, particularly those of slave owners or, very, very, you know, I mean, I can, I can see that. But one's got. I mean, the question is, how far do you want to go on this? I mean, I have very good friends at Princeton, old friends of mine at Princeton, and of course Woodrow Wilson was the president of Princeton, and you know, Woodrow Wilson was you know was a southerner, and uh, you know, I mean, he held the views which, in fact, let's be perfectly honest, Lincoln held too. Uh, 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 about about African Americans. I mean, Lincoln's main first proposal, of course, was not emancipation, but was ultimately possibly to send send Africans and slaves back back to Africa. You know, I mean, and he had massive arguments then with Frederick Douglass, mm. one of the great figures in American history, of course. Um, so, you know, even Wilson, even at Princeton, even at even at Princeton, at Princeton too, I had friends of mine have been saying they wanted to change the name of the Woodrow Wilson Center. You know, because Wilson did, did have views of the time. Now, how you handle that one, I don't know. You can't rewrite history, and I think that's what you're getting at. Mm. You can't change history. What you can do is the best thing you can do is try and analyse it, contextualise it, and explain why certain views we would now find reprehensible, you know, were once held, and that's the best we can do. Try and understand rather than just denounce, I think. That would be my, but I'm an academic. Yeah. I'm about to say well, Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast and he has a great uh, episode on that very issue on mm. renaming or the proposal to rename uh, the Wilson School. Of, uh, I think it's Wilson School of Public Policy. It's the Wilson School of Public Policy there. Yeah. So we talked about historians and, and you mentioned several times uh, your historical bent, which I appreciate mm. very much. Mm, mm. I, I want you to zoom forward in history so I, i'm going to ask you a question that's probably unfair but do you think historians will look back and interpret the covid19 outbreak as a kind of the event that ultimately led to a successful international effort to confront 
climate change? Or do you think it's more likely that historians will look back and interpret the COVID-19 outbreak and the economic depression that follows as the kind of great detractors, distractors, the great distractors that led to the ultimately yeah. to the climate disaster, which is potentially an existential threat? Well, and, and to be honest, Matt, if I had an answer to that question, I would be a very, very rich man. But not. <laughs> um, not that I came into the academic world to become rich, to be honest with you. That's a great question, but one which I think is almost impossible to answer, honest with you. It, I, I've been looking at this question of the relationship between COVID and climate debates, you know, over the, as, as indeed have many people. Now, on the one hand, you could say that it's really illustrated that, uh, in a way, COVID is a consequence of environmental catastrophe, is it not, really? Somebody made this point the other day, and I thought it was a very well-made point, that this, COVID isn't something separate from degradation of the environment in a sense it's very much a it's a manifestation of a deeper environmental problem you know the movement you know people all the rest of it you know you you know the arguments um so it shouldn't be seen as separate from the larger environmental degradation of the planet which has been which has been part of our great contribution to civilization over the last 30 to 40 years or more on the other hand, it, it strikes me, and again, I, I may be taking a bit of a tough line on this, that it's also exposed the, and I want to be very careful in the use of my words here, it, I've looked out of the window, like you have, Matt, and I can see blue skies, I can hear birds singing, and I've never breathed air in London, which has been so clean. So I think this is great, but is, is, the, is a complete collapse, effectively, or, of, of the economy, you know, the solution you know, to the climate crisis. And, and I'm sure most people are not going to vote for that, to be perfectly honest. But it does bring out that, that problem that if you want to move forward to address the crisis, emerge, the climate emergency, as I would prefer to call it, not just the crisis, then clearly there is that I think there cannot be anything other than a bit of an economic cost. Hmm. Are we prepared? It won't be like we have today. I, 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 I see that. But there's bound to be some kind of economic cost as we transition to something called you know, in the long term, if people want this, and I do, a green economy. Yeah. Travel so much. Yeah, I think you know, I mean, certain jobs will just go, and certain jobs will not be required any longer. And sure. What What's going to happen, therefore, to the the old economic model we had of growth? I I I you know, it, it's it, you've got to confront that. You can't have your cake and eat it. You know, yeah. I kind of see there may be trade offs here, which might be difficult ones. I don't know. That's well, my. Here's here's my optimistic self, you know. Good. Um, so uh, think of a house, and think <laughs> of the house needs the house is, has structural problems. It it needs a lot of work. Uh, the 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 walls are falling down, and for years and years it's been patched up. And you bring <laughs> a builder in, and you say, uh, you know, can you can you help me? And the builder says, okay, well. Uh, it, it, to remodel the existing house is going to be very, very difficult because, mm. you know, it, we have, you're going to be living in the house and there's going to be people who are out of their bedrooms and you can't use the kitchen, et cetera. You know, what, what we could really do is just tear it all down. And if we tore it all down and started again, then we could build the house much more effectively. And, and mm. uh, I know it's an extended analogy and it probably is going to get me in trouble, but I kind of think that maybe... If the economy is truly kind of wrecked because of the COVID-19, yeah. that it may 
present an opportunity where you say it has yeah. to be rebuilt anyway. Mm. So how are we going to rebuild it? And maybe it's easier to rebuild from a kind of ground zero than it would be to challenge. Like, can you imagine challenging simultaneously the holiday industry, the hotel industry, the airplane industry, the automotive industry, the oil the, industry, yes. the oil industry, all in a kind of normal politics. But now all of those industries are up in the air. And, and can we, does this crisis create, I hope, the opportunity to kind of a rebuild in a grand vision? Now we're back mm. to your observation that I, I long for states people, people in public life that have the vision and leadership to, to grab that narrative and run with it. Now, I don't know whether they're there or not, but I, 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 I at least that, that vision makes me hopeful. Let me be a little bit more, I won't say realistic, because <laughs> that sounds patronizing, and I'm not being patronizing, I hope, but maybe a bit more pessimistic. I, I think if and when we start coming out of this, and we don't know when we're going to come out, really, um, I think politicians, A, of whom I have a very low opinion at the moment, I'll be perfectly honest. I don't have an idealized version of leaders in the past, you know, walking the earth, you know, giants. And all I do, when I look back in even in 1919, as I said, you know, they made mistakes, but they were giants by comparison to yeah. today. Yeah. Um, I kind of think they will be so desperate to get people back into work, to get the economy up and running as soon as possible, to make sure the unemployment figures move from 20% to 10% down to 8%. They'll be under such pressures from their electorates and their voters. I need my job, mate, and I want it now. Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 I fear and I worry, Matt, that your lovely vision, which I, I really go with in, in summary, I'm not, I'm not sure I like words like ground zero, but <laughs> Sorry. That. I'm a bit worried about ground zero. Uh, it's a term which has all sorts of this. Yes, I understand. Yeah. You know that. A, a poor use of the term. No, well, no, it's okay. We, we, but um, I would just be a bit worried that politicians would be so desperate to keep, you know, to get it, to get anything off the ground, to just get things not back to normal, but as near to normal as possible. That yeah. I think they'll, they won't be, they won't have enough intellectual or economic space to think the big thoughts. That's the worry. You can, I can, but I'm not sure. Politicians, after all, are politicians. We shouldn't denounce them yeah. being politicians. They have to look to electorates with all electorates with their needs, with their prejudices, with their demands. You're right. I mean, and you I'm, can't get too far ahead of them. I mean, Mick, it's interesting exactly. because yeah. in our first discussion with Olivia Siboni, we talked about yeah. this, that leaders in some ways the experience of china and italy because people could see what would happen mm. if they mm. weren't careful gave mm. the politicians the space to ask their populaces to do all kinds of crazy things because you know stay home for 10 weeks or you know don't 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 meet with anybody all these things that would've been crazy mm. if if china if the china experience with covid-19 in italy hadn't happened and it was just preventative. It's not clear that any of the global leaders could do the shutdown as they did. And this is, we, we talked about yeah. how leaders can't get too far ahead. And I think that that's, that's the argument you just made now. Mm. And it's the thing that makes me most pessimistic about, mm. as you call the climate emergency, because by the time we have an Italy or a China, the equivalent 
uh, in a climate sense, it will be too late to stop. The time frames mm. are too long. Well, this is worrying. I, I agree with you, Matt, and I think that is deeply worrying. And this is why you know this this pandemic it may have opportunities. And I know we we like you, and I I do want to look on the optimistic side. On I want to see the sun coming up over the horizon. I don't want to see clouds all the time. Yeah. But it worries me that in in people are not at their best. Let's put it bluntly. Yeah. In deep emergencies and in deep emergencies like that, where the, where their health, where their lives are threatened because of the pandemic. All their livelihoods are threatened. They're being forced to stay at home. It's a very abnormal situation, and people are suffering. They are suffering. I'm not suffering so much because you know I'm a particular kind of guy in a certain moment of my life. I've paid my mortgage and I can stay, you know, in a nice. Yeah. But the, the, the situation for the majority of what I call ordinary people, and I don't mean that again in a patronizing way, is much much different. And I think they're going to be in immediate action quickly. I just really do need to get back to normal. However, as we've seen with the teachers in the United Kingdom and many, many others, they are still very worried about this, this, this COVID-19. They, they, and they've lost a bit of faith in this government telling the truth about oh, it. Absolutely. I mean, my wife... Is again, a... distrust in politicians can be healthy. You know, you know, that's good. But on the other hand, too much distrust. Well, other politicians and other political voices will come along and say, I've got the solution. And that's where the dangers arise, I think. No, uh, my wife is a teacher in a primary school. Yeah. And, um, you know, the the government's position on schools and reopening schools is, is an interesting one. I, I think mm -hmm. that what is disheartening is they haven't, in my opinion, they haven't been completely honest about the risks. So, um, exactly. And because of that, not telling i don't think there's been dishonest but there haven't been a full uh, no, no, discussion no, and, and because of that as you say people start to lose trust and once people start to lose trust then then things get very very difficult they do to start to kind of wrap up the conversation this has been fantastic thank you very much but to, to start to wrap it up thank you what's going to be uh and again unfair question but what's the biggest story that in 2021 that people aren't talking about right now is it going to be some yeah, the biggest news story of 2021 that nobody's talking about right now. Is it going to be yet another prediction of the death of globalism? Or is it going to be a hot Chinese and U.S. conflict? Is it going to be the euro collapsing? Is it going to be the EU uh, yeah. no longer functioning as a, as a political unit? What well, do you think is going to happen? I, well, this is where my realism kicks in. My realism makes me an optimist, by the way. I think it's none of the above, if I'm perfectly honest with you, Matt. I mean, we've been predicting all sorts of catastrophic outcomes over the last few years, have we not? After 2008, this crisis, they're, they're, they're bad. I'm not trying to minimize them. They've had consequences, no doubt about it. We've got Brexit in this country, which has almost been forgotten, though it's now back on the agenda yet again. You know, there's stacks of problems out there. I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of all of them, I think, or most of them anyway, those that I fully understand. But I don't think we're going to see deglobalization. I actually don't think we are going to see, you know, a profound collapse in the US-China relationship. The interests of both countries still remain aligned more than they remain opposed. You know, I, I kind of do take that kind of view. The EU, to be frank, is just too important to collapse, hmm. you know, because the alternatives are so awful. I mean, when people are presented with the alternatives to to an integrated Europe led by decent countries like Germany and Europe and Italy. Well, I think the alternatives don't look great. Um, 
So I'm I'm would not be a catastrophist on these kinds of issues, you know. Um, maybe my worst I should be more worst case analysis, but I think I, I remain that a lot of the, we won't return to normal, but I'm not sure it's going to be quite as cat- catastrophic as people believe. The other thing is, it's quite amazing sometimes. I mean, I've made certain predictions in the past, which I think I wish I'd never made that. <laughs> and the more extreme you make your prediction, the more people are likely to read what you write. Okay. If you kind of say on the one hand, but on the other, which is very English, people kind of turn off a little bit. Oh, that's pretty dull, isn't it? On the one hand, but on the other. But I tend to be a bit on the on the one hand, but on the other kind of guy. You know, I, I just don't think we are heading into a deep and profound new Cold War with China. I think we're heading into difficult, we are in a difficult situation. I think the EU is going through another one of its stress moments, but I think it's going to come out of it. Uh, I actually also think, and here's a, here's a prediction for you, Matt, which I wish I'm not going to make, but I'm going to say, I think we will get some kind of deal on Brexit. Um, I, I, I kind of hold out some hope on that one. Wow. I, hope, I certainly hope we get there. The worry, my worry is really that it, it, this, this two things. One is the climate change, which you, I, I'm, I'm worried that we're, it, we'd be so happy to be out the other side of this crisis, which I hope we are. But I, I think the, maybe the climate debate might have suffered as a result because people are going to be so relieved to be the other side of this terrible situation we're now in. And it might put climate crisis slightly more down the list of priorities for governments, as I've already indicated. I would worry about that. The second thing I'd worry about, and this, the appeal of populism has not gone away. I mean, as you said, they, they may not have solutions but they do have slogans. And it could well be that a lot of people coming out and why didn't we get this crisis better right? Why didn't we, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would, I, I would be concerned about that. It's going to be tough, tough in, the, in 21 for centrist, liberal democratic politicians, you know, to, to, hold, to hold the line. And I think populists could see a surge. I, I don't know. I, I hope not. But I think there is a danger, I feel, that they could... They could try and exploit the tensions that come out of this crisis, which are going to be real. Well, that was a perfect example of the value of on the one hand and then on the other, <laughs> because that was a that was a, a really brilliant uh, uh, way to to kind of wrap this up. The one last thing I'd just ask: we asked this uh, so far for every guest. Uh, any book or podcast or anything like this that you would recommend to the Triumph community to help pass away the lockdown time? <laughs> Well, no, I, I don't really have anything terribly serious, but I'll tell you what, I've been watching a box set. I, I, it may sound a little bit strange, but it's a box set about Weimar Germany, and it's called Babylon Berlin. Okay. Wonderful history of, of, a, period in, of a period in German history, which prefigured the coming to power of Nazi Germany and Hitler. Now, that may not be to everyone's taste, but it's beautifully acted. It's brilliantly done. It has fantastic songs. And it's serious. And it also brings us back to Keynes in a way. Hmm. I might just wrap, wrap it up with that rather than neat little segue. Um, it does take you back to Keynes because what Keynes was deeply concerned about was the health of, of Germany more than anything else. He, he, had, he had no illusions about who had started World War I. He blamed Germany for that. Nonetheless, he said, if you don't treat Germany in a way that it's going to lead to its rehabilitation, 
Germany itself is going to suffer politically, and the consequences of that internationally will be severe. Now, what this wonderful box set is made by it's, it's made by Germans. It's got it's got you know all the things that go with that, which is wonderful. Uh, it kind of gives you a glimpse of a society that Keynes thought might come into being and then collapse, which it finally did in 31, 32. And so if you want to watch anything, it goes on for weeks, by the way, so you've got to have a lot of time, but many of us have got a lot of time. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like a perfect choice. Babylon, Berlin. I'm, I, I'm, going to take out, I'm going to take out shares in that one. It's absolutely wonderful. That's what I've been watching anyway. Babylon, Berlin. You, you got wonderful. It. Well, yeah. Mick Cox, thank you very much for joining us. Matt, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I'm a great supporter of Triumph, as you know, and all the great work that you do, Robert Faulkner and his team, uh, all, all the other guys. Uh, and so thank you so much for giving me the time and privilege to talk about one of my favorite, probably my favorite uh, economist of the 20th century, John Maynard Keynes. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.